The views and opinions expressed on this show are purely the views and opinions of the person who made them and do not necessarily reflect or agree with those of the show's commercial sponsors, its radio station affiliates, or Internet broadcast platforms. As the restriction on our God-given right to free speech manifests itself throughout the world, we are inspired by Jesus Christ's immortal words, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And we reserve the rights to all our words. Thank you, and now enjoy the show. Learn who rules over you. Simply find out who you are not allowed to criticise. You are listening to ACH. I'm Andy, your host. Today is Tuesday. It's February the 20th. It's 9.57am here in the UK, making it 11.57, three minutes to midday over in South Africa, where my good friend Dr. Peter Hammond is. Let's bring him up right now. Peter, are you with us? I'm with you, yes. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And what Peter has for us today is a presentation entitled The Real Story of Successful Secession Movements Defeating the Globalist Centralisation Agenda. So where would you like to start us off with this uh, topic today, Peter? Well, Andrew, we've got the globalists always trying to have some kind of centralised Tower of Babel type of situation, even when you go through to Strasbourg, and you see the EU Parliament building, it's built in the shape of the old uh, Tower of Babel, uh, even with the outside looking like incomplete scaffolding and incomplete building, the structure of it. They very self-consciously are building themselves in Babel. In fact, they have a Tower of Babel type picture in one of their posters with the EU um, stars in the shape of the occultic pentagram where they've got like the devil's or uh, horns, uh, ears and a beard like of the goat. That So they've inverted the five-pointed cross at a star so that it's um, looking like the occultic pentagram. And then they say, Europe, many tongues, one voice. I mean, using even that term, many tongues, they are plainly saying we're reversing Babel. Outside their Brussels, parliamentary building, they also have a woman riding the beast, taking all kinds of occultic symbolism from the book of Revelation either, even, and self-consciously identifying themselves as anti-biblical. The big um, EU um, computer in Brussels is even called the Beast of Brussels, and a key access code used there is 666. The EU and other globalists are doing everything so consciously to reject Christianity. You can even summarize cancel cultures, cancel Christianity, basically. It's everything to do with Western Christian civilization must be canceled. And that's why they believe in so much arson and destruction, uh, such as even Notre Dame cathedrals burning in uh, France, which in that year, there were over 1,200 
arson attacks on churches in France. And yet the president of France, Macron, could make the statement while the uh, Notre Dame was still burning, this is, they've ruled out arson, it cannot be arson. Well, that's the most obvious thought is arson. And being a fireman in the past, uh, there's no way you can make a statement in the middle of a fire when the firemen are still fighting the fire and putting out the flames, uh, what the cause was or was not. There's been no forensic studies yet. And yet the president ruled out arson while they were still fighting the fire. Cancel culture is a reality. So what we need to do is how can we preserve our societies and cultures and how can we survive the globalists? Well, secession movements are trying to do just that. And in the Western Cape, I've been involved in a Cape Independence Forum. I'm the chairman of the Cape Independence Forum in the Western Cape. And we just sent our new book, A Case for Secession, to the printer. It's been a longstanding project. And uh, interestingly, as we've done so, and as we've been having radio and TV programs dealing with the issue of Cape Independence, it's coming up now in the mainstream media and being attacked by the government and by the ANC and even by the opposition party of the Democratic Alliance, which we often call them the DANC or the, Demo or the Demonic Alliance because the DA is for everything that we're against, basically. Uh, they are fair opposition that they expose the corruption of the government, but uh, they are a bad government in that they support everything from abortion on demand to the LGBTQ transgender cult movement. Uh, they light up their city council buildings in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. Uh, they so make clear that they are on every woke uh, principle. And we know that uh, our local DA government here in the Western Cape, although they reject the ANC, uh, they get money from Soros. They uh, get money from Bill Gates. They're plainly part of the globalist agenda. And uh, just recently, the head of the DA, or the chairperson of the DA, Ivan Mayer made a statement um, that uh, they do not support Cape Exit, they do not support Cape Independence. We don't believe in that. Um, we will not go that way. It's the wrong route. We believe in being united in diversity. This is the true reflection of South Africa. And then John Steenhuisen, the head or the leader of the Democratic Alliance, made the statement uh, that secession is stupid and unworkable. Well, that is just not true. He's just making his ignorance and his prejudice clear with such a foolish statement. You just think Switzerland, one of the most successful, free, prosperous countries on the planet, is the result of secession. The United States of America, the Netherlands, Belgium, Finland, Norway, these are all countries that are very successful and have come out of secession. Namibia seceded from South Africa in 1990, and they're actually doing better than South Africa's right now, economically, socially, and in many ways. South Sudan is a recent African example of secession. You know, does the government and the opposition party who say that secession is stupid, foolish, unworkable, do they think we should break up off diplomatic relations with Namibia or South Sudan or the United States or Finland, Norway, Netherlands, Belgium or any other country that's a result of secession? And uh, as a missionary who for over 40 years has concentrated on serving persecuted churches, I've traveled in 42 countries and I've worked in 38 countries across four continents. And that's included throughout Eastern Europe behind the Iron Curtain during the Cold War. And during that time, I was an eyewitness to several successful secession movements. And when I first visited Yugoslavia back in 1980s, it was still under communism, I heard people in Croatia speaking about the need for independence. And I was highly skeptical 
that it could succeed. But they were talking very straightforward. Yugoslavia is going to break up. Croatia is going to go independent. And at that moment, Yugoslavia consisted of six republics, five nations, four languages, three major religions, two alphabets, two calendars, but only one political party, the Communist Party, which at one time was under bronze Tito. Well, in 1990, the first multi-party elections were held in Croatia, and that changed everything because on the 25th of June 1991, Croatia declared independence, which came into effect on the 8th of October 1991. By January 1992, Croatia was recognized as an independent country by the European Economic Community, and then uh, the aggression by the Yugoslav army was effectively ended on August 1995 with a decisive victory for Croatia. And since then, 5th of August has been observed as Victory and Homeland Thanksgiving Day, the Day of Croatian Defenders. Well, in Slovenia, I also heard people talk in 1980s about the case for independence of Slovene. And Yugoslavia means the land of the South Slavs. But Slovenia and Croatia were more Germanic. They used to be part of the Austrian Empire. They're not Slavic at all. But they were forced by the vindictive Versailles Treaty to be part of Yugoslavia, which is a creation of Versailles. Yugoslavia is a bad idea from the beginning, and it didn't survive uh, the end of the Cold War. Uh, Yugoslavia broke up. And Slovenia, um, a group of intellectuals, started to articulate the case for independence in, 18, in 1987. And they produced the magazine Nova Revija, and they, they produced the Committee for the Defense of Human Rights and started to demand democratization, independence for Slovenia, and they forced the government to enact a number of democratic reforms. In September 1989, they made a constitutional amendment passed to introduce parliamentary democracy to Slovenia. On the 7th of March 1990, the Slovenian Assembly changed the official name of the state to the Republic of Slovenia, from the Socialist Republic of Slovenia to the Republic of Slovenia. In April 1990, they had the first democratic elections in Slovenia. And 23rd December 1990, 88% of the electorate voted in a referendum for a sovereign, independent Slovenia. Slovenia then declared independence 25th of June 1991, um, the same as Croatia. And this led to the 10-day war. And the result was the Brionai Agreement and the withdrawal of the Yugoslav army from Slovenia. And they recognized the independence of Slovenia. December 1991, new constitution was adopted, and then they passed laws on denationalization, privatization of state enterprises in 1992. The members of the European Union recognized Slovenia as an independent state, 15th of January 1992. So that's happened very fast. When I first traveled to Bratislava in Czechoslovakia, the Slovakians were talking about seceding from Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia is another creation of the Versailles Treaty, the vindictive Versailles Treaty that didn't regard demographics, but in fact was a polygot country, a basic a country where the Czechs were the minority, actually, in the country. And yet they were running this country, which included three million Sudeten Germans and a whole lot of Poles, Hungarians and others, even some Ukrainians and, of course, the Slovaks. Well, the Christians were adamant Slovakia must become an independent country. Well, indeed, following the collapse of the communist rule in Czechoslovakia in 1989, the fall of the wall in the collapse of the Iron Curtain, and with the withdrawal of the, Slo the Soviet army, the Slovak Republic was renamed from the Slovak Socialist Republic to the Slovak Republic on the 17th of June 
1992, and Slovakia declared itself a sovereign state, meaning its laws took precedence over those of the federal government. And throughout the autumn of 1992, they had negotiations with the Czech federal government, and it resulted in a vote 31st of December 1992 to dissolve Czechoslovakia. And the Slovak Republic and the Czech Republic went their separate ways after the 1st of January 1993. And as the overthrow of the communist rule in Czechoslovakia had been called the Velvet Revolution, because nobody died in it, the peaceful separation of Czech and Slovakia is called the Velvet Divorce. And to this day, Slovakia is a free and independent republic. Well, Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia are Baltic states, which were occupied over the centuries by Sweden, Poland and Russia. But the Republic of Latvia was established 18th of November 1918 when it seceded from the Soviet Union. After the Bolshevik Revolution, the Baltic states decided they didn't want to be part of this Red Revolution in Russia, so they reasserted their independence. In 1940, Latvia was invaded by the Soviet Union, and later Latvia was liberated by the German Wehrmacht during Operation Barbarossa in 1941. And in 1944, the Soviet Red Army again invaded Latvia and forced it back into the Soviet Union. Well, starting in 1987, the singing revolution called for Baltic emancipation from communism. They couldn't do much else, but they could sing. So they had cultural revolution, so-called, where they had concerts where they would sing their old classic heritage songs. And this was a way of protesting against Soviet communism and occupation. On the 4th of May 1990, the Declaration on the Restoration of Independence of the Republic of Latvia was issued. And 21st of August 1991, Latvia declared itself independent. Latvia has been declared the capital of culture in Europe, and its capital, Riga, hosts the Choir Olympics, which my daughter, Daniela, as part of the Cape Town Youth Choir, participated in. In fact, it was the Stellenbosch Choir that won the... Um, the Choir Olympics, there was over 140 choirs from around the world participating in Riga for the events, and South Africans played a good role in it, and Western Cape particularly did well. Estonia was also occupied over the centuries by Polish, Swedish, and Russian imperial forces. Well, they declared the independence of the Bolshevik Revolution, 24th of February 1918. And on the 6th of August 1940, Estonia was invaded and occupied by Stalin's Red Army, and incorporated in the Soviet Union. Well, Estonians were liberated by the Germans in 1941 in Operation Barbarossa and continued to resist the Soviets throughout the Second World War. Well, after the Second World War, they were reoccupied by the Soviet Army, and the Forest Brothers resisted um, the Soviet policies. They fought from the forests, and the Forest Brothers were the Estonian resistance movement, which continued for decades fighting in, in the forests. I've got pictures of them, including... Um, the resistance fighters uh, fighting throughout the 40s and 50s in Estonia, in the forest. Well, by 1988, the Popular Front for Estonia became the standard bearer for Estonian independence. The Estonian National Independence Party was the first non-communist party in the Soviet Union. It demanded full restoration of independence of Estonia. 16th of November 1988, the Estonian Supreme Soviet issued a sovereignty declaration asserting the primacy of Estonian laws over Soviet laws. On the 23rd of August 1989, two million Estonians, Latvians and Lithuanians participated in a mass demonstration forming what they called the Baltic Way human chain, where people lined the roads across the three uh, Baltic states uh, going for uh, vast amounts of miles 
uh, showing a solidarity between the three uh, Baltic states that they wanted independence, the Baltic Way, they called it. And in 1990, the Congress of Estonia was formed as a representative body of Estonian citizens. March 1991, they held a referendum. 77% of voters supported independence. And then the Moscow coup attempt was exposed and resisted, and Estonia declared its restoration of independence 20th of August 1991, which is now observed as a national holiday in Estonia. The last units of the Red Army left them only in 1994, but uh, the Estonians sought to ignore them for uh, the last few years until the Red Army just was forced to leave. In 1992, Estonia launched economic reforms, privatization, free market economy, multi-party democracy, free press, and so on. 2004, Estonia joined the European Union and NATO. Well, Lithuania seceded from the Soviet Union also in 1918, after the Baltic Revolution. 16th of February 1918, they formed the Republic of Lithuania. In 1940, Lithuania was invaded by Stalin's Red Army. Uh, Stalin, of course, invaded a lot of places in 1939-1940. Uh, they invaded, of course, Finland and uh, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and parts of Romania, what's now called Moldova. Um, so the Soviet Union was very aggressive. They, of course, invaded Poland as well. Interesting, Britain declared war on Germany for invading Poland, but made itself an ally of the Soviet Union, who also invaded Poland at the same time, except from the opposite direction. Um, well, Lithuania uh, seceded from the Soviet Union in 1918. In 1940, they were invaded by the Soviet Red Army and then liberated by the Wehrmacht for the 19, Operation Barbarossa, 41, 42, 43. 1944, uh, the Red Army re them. And 1990, uh, a year before the formal dissolution of the Soviet Union, Lithuania became the four, first Baltic state to declare itself independent, 11th of March, 1990. They announced the restoration of Lithuania's independence. So on the 28th of March, 1990, the Soviet Union imposed an economic blockade on Lithuania, sanctions. And this severe blockade lasted 74 days, but the Lithuanians stood firm. And when the Soviets attempted a communist coup in Lithuania, storming the palace, Lithuanians vigorously defended their council and they inspired other Soviet republics to secede from the Union, from the Soviet Union. Well, shortly after 11th of February 1991, the Parliament of Iceland voted to confirm that the 1922 recognition of Lithuanian independence was still in effect. Iceland never had formally recognized the Soviet Union's occupation of Lithuania, so Iceland stated full diplomatic relations were going to be re-established as soon as possible, and other countries followed suit. 25th of October 1992, the citizens of Lithuania voted in a referendum to adopt the new constitution and their independence. 31st of August 1993, the last units of the Red Army left Lithuanian territory. And since 2004, Lithuania has been a member of NATO and of the European Union. Well, those are European examples, but I've got some African examples too. From 1995, I was involved in a campaign for South Sudan's independence. Sudan was the largest country in Africa, although not anymore because one third of its territory seceded in 2011, forming the, most, uh, the youngest, newest country in the world, South Sudan. Well, from 1995 to 2002, I completed 27 missions to Sudan, and I smuggled in over half a million Bibles and books, which were illegal, in 24 languages throughout southern Sudan and the Nube Mountains. And during that time, I conducted over 1,200 
church services, Bible studies, lectures, chapel services inside Sudan, and over a thousand meetings, radio and TV programs internationally to campaign for South Sudan's independence. And I was heavily involved in the campaign for South Sudan's independence, including writing the book Faith Under Fine Sudan, three editions, and the third edition being three times the size of the original 1996 edition. And I brought in filmmakers like Patriciano of Jeremiah Films, and they produced films like Sudan, The Hidden Holocaust, Terrorism, Persecution, which played a major role in mobilizing support internationally for South Sudan's independence campaign. And I assisted Samaritan's Purse uh, of Franklin Graham to set up the first hospital in in uh, South Sudan, and uh, they produced a lot of films that also helped produce with them, all of which helped to promote South Sudanese independence. Well, initially, even the leaders of the Sudanese People's Liberation Army were highly skeptical that the map could ever be redrawn. And I had the founder of the Sudanese People's Liberation Army, Colonel John Garang, arguing with me that it, independence would be great, but the only thing they could hope for was autonomy. And uh, I argued strenuously with Colonel John Garang and with his second command, Commander Silver Kier, that they said all they could get was autonomy, not independence. And I said, unless you break away and redraw the map, you will always be under oppression by the Arab North because black Christians will be a minority in their own country. But black Christians are a majority in South Sudan. So if you redraw the map, you can have your own country. You can have self-determination. And uh, many missionaries had pleaded with Great Britain to do just that in 1955, that when Britain left on the 1st of January 1956, they should hand over South Sudan into Uganda or into Kenya, uh, uh, but not to uh, leave them under Arab rule. If they didn't want to give Equatoria independence, at least incorporate them into Christian-majority countries like Kenya or Uganda, but to no avail. And from the first day of independence, 1st of January 1956, the Arab North sought to Islamize and Arabize the South, very brutally. A lot of oppression, great devastation, a lot of loss of life. And so I showed um, John Garang and Silver Kier from Sudan's history and from the teachings of Islam, why the only way to be free of Sharia law and Arab oppression was to fight for full independence and sovereignty of South Sudan and the Nubian Mountains and redraw the map. And although they were highly skeptical that it was possible, today South Sudan is an independent country. And Silva Kier, who I argued with as recently as 2002 about this, he became the first president of South Sudan in 9 July 2011, and he's still president of South Sudan. So today we continue to campaign for freedom and independence for the Nuba Mountains, which is an island of Christianity and a sea of Islam in the north. The Nuba Mountains are located in Sudan's South Kordofan state, bordering South Sudan. And the courageous Nuban Christians continue to resist the Arabization and the Islamization policies of the Khartoum government. And I pointed out that redrawing the map is absolutely essential to recognize ethno-linguistic demographic realities and to avoid future conflict. In fact, so many of the wars in Africa have been a result of not recognizing demographic realities when it comes to drawing the borders. We should not continue to follow in the footsteps of failure. Centralization in a unitary state is as doomed to failure as the Tower of Babel was. We need to emulate examples of excellence such as the decentralized model of Switzerland and the free enterprise model of Singapore, both results of secession. Well, the Berlin Conference of 1884 to 1885 
was also known as the Congo Conference or the West Africa Conference. It sought to avoid conflict by regularizing European protectorates and colonies in Africa to effectively eradicate the slave trade and to avoid conflict between European powers. And the European powers gathered in the Berlin Conference were also seeking to prevent the rising American, Russian and Japanese encroachments on Africa. It would be shocking to think what could have happened to Africa if they'd been colonized by the Japanese or the Russians or the Americans. However, due to lack of information and due to a very incomplete understanding of the realities of Africa, the borders were often drawn along lines of longitude and latitude. Sometimes they literally used the ruler to draw a line dividing up a country. And they sometimes used the river, but of course, tribes and nations often live on both sides of a river. I mean, imagine making the Thames a border for Britain. Well, that doesn't quite work because you're living on both sides of the Thames. And the same would be true for the Rhine and the Danube and so on, and the Mississippi River. The fact is, many tribes are on both sides of these arbitrary borders. And in my missionary work, it's become clear the map of Africa needs to be redrawn. Half the Shangon people live in Mozambique and speak Portuguese. The other half live in South Africa and speak English. Half the Evamba people live in Angola, where they learn Portuguese as their second language, and they drive on the right hand side of the road. But the other half of the Evamba live in Namibia, learning Afrikaans or English and driving on the left hand side of the road. And then two different time zones, despite being directly north and south of one another. Then you get the Chichewa people, who are divided between Malawi, Zambia and Mozambique. And throughout Africa, you see these anomalies as well. So the greatest conflicts in Africa have ignored the reality of, of demographics. The Biafran Civil War would never have happened in Nigeria, 1967 to 1970, if they'd redrawn the map, giving the Christian South independence from the Muslim North. Most of the Congo Wars and the long conflicts in Sudan would not have happened. It could have been averted if the maps had reflected demographic realities and not forced some people to be minorities in their own country, oppressed by other tribes, other cultures, and other religions. So it's inexcusable that the African Union has steadfastly refused to allow maps to be redrawn, the apparent exception to this being Eritrea. But Eritrea was a separate entity uh, recognized by the Berlin Conference, and only after the end of the Second World War was Eritrea forced to be part of Abyssinia, and they formed a new country called Ethiopia. This led to a long-standing civil war until Eritrea's independence was re-established in 1991. So redrawing the map and the recognition of independence of South Sudan was a monumentally important precedent. And the scripture says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And that's what we need. And it's worthwhile noticing, um, I've just given some eyewitness examples of independence, but remember, a major part of the Bible is Exodus. And Exodus records how Israel, the nation of Israel, grew out of secession from Egypt. In the Bible, a nation is an ethno-linguistic people group with a shared faith. The scriptures make it clear the Hebrews remained Hebrews. Even after 480 years in Egypt, they didn't become Egyptians. They are not geographic accents. We are not geographic accents. We're demographic descendants. I mean, you can ask, oh, what nationality are you if you're born uh, in a ship on the ocean? Well, you'd be the nationality of your parents, of course. And that's the thing. The scriptures emphasize all the families and nations of the earth are to sing the praises of the creator in every language and tongue. Revelation uh, 5 speaks about, and they sang a new song, saying, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals. For you redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
Revelation 5.9. So it's so important to recognize that people are not geographic accidents, but demographic descendants. And so the importing of millions of illegal aliens from all over the world into the United States of America is an invasion. It's a great population exchange control, um, basically a great replacement. And there are many people talking about that in Europe too, that the millions and millions of people from the third world flooding into Europe, flooding into Britain and France and Germany and Sweden, they are an invasion, a literal invasion. And in many ways, it's a great replacement. The same population, the same globalists who are saying um, myths of overpopulation so on require you must be sterilized and you must have abortions. And here you've got governments in the West uh, who are like in Netherlands and in Belgium who are euthanizing uh, older people, even without their own request, euthanizing people who are very sick. A state doctor deciding without the request of the patient or even its relatives to kill a patient. And here they are killing people, either the very young through abortion or the very old through euthanasia. And uh, they encouraging sterilization and LGBTQ transgender cults business with gender affirming surgery where they castrate boys and they uh, cut off breasts of healthy girls, mastectomies, uh, what they call gender affirming care, which is bodily mutilation and genital mutilation and so on. And uh, obviously sterilizing them. And then, oh, gee, there's too few Europeans. Let's bring in uh, extra guest workers and so on from overseas. But they're going to, they won't necessarily work. They might just be welfare junkies living on welfare forever. But that doesn't matter. We're overtaxing the Europeans so that they can pay for the population replacement, the demographic um, uh, revolution, the demographic time bomb that's going to turn Europe into Arabia and so on. And so you can just imagine what's going on there. Uh, but bear in mind, biblically, a nation is an ethno-linguistic people group of a shared faith. So if the Hebrews never became Egyptians after 480 years in Egypt, you determine a person's nation not by where they were born, but by what the race and, and nationality of their parents are. And so it's not geographically, well, you have to be born in England, therefore you're an Englishman. I saw a National Geographic with a, a whole lot of pictures of uh, some Arabs, and they're calling them the New Swedes or the new Europeans. Well, that's not true. They're not new Swedes. They're not new Norwegians or Scandinavians. They are Arabs who have moved in to replace the Swedes or the Danes or the Norwegians and so on. And so, again, you've got the same thing in Britain. So many of these people, they're not new Englishmen or new Scotsmen or so on. They are Arabs or Africans or whatever their nationality is, Asians and so on, who are there to replace uh, the English people. And I believe English people are now a minority in London. And it won't be long before English people might be a minority in, in England. They say by 2050, the French will be a minority in France. And if present trends continue, Europe will soon um, be extinct. White Europeans will be a thing of the past. They'll be endangered species replaced by a whole new population. The amount of people pouring into these countries, it is serious. And so... That is why secessions are important. And historically, you can also see, or biblically also, we can see that secessions can be of God. The nation of Israel was a result of secession from Egypt. And then in 1 Kings 12, we read of the secession of the 12 northern tribes from the United Kingdom of Israel. So after the reigns of King Saul, King David, and King Solomon in the United Kingdom, the United Kingdom was divided when Solomon's son Rehoboam foolishly dismissed the wise counsel of the elders who had stood before his father. Instead, 
chose to listen to the irresponsible advice of the young men who had grown up with Rehoboam, and he arrogantly dismissed the petition of his subjects and threatened to tax them even heavier and to burden them with more oppressive laws than they'd ever experienced before. And so the people said, what share have we in David? We have no inheritance in the house of Jesse. Uh, to your tents, O Israel, and to your own house, O David. And it re reads in 1 Kings 12, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And there was none who followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. And so King Rehoboam assembled 180,000 warriors to fight against the house of Israel to restore the United Kingdom. And God stopped them. And God declared that this secession was of him. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Let every man return to his house, for this thing is of me. Therefore they obeyed the word of the Lord, and they turned back according to the word of the Lord, 1 Kings 12. And this is an important principle. Secession can be of God. And certainly the nation of Israel ground of secession, and so did Judah and, and the northern states of Israel, or what we call Samaria, also grew out of secession. And God said, this is of me. Well, all government needs to be limited authority. Lex Rex, the law is king, not Rex Lex, where the king is the law, but Lex Rex, where the law is king. The king is under the law. God's law is supreme. And all authority is limited authority. All authority is delegated authority. All authority is answerable to Almighty God. He is our eternal judge and our creator. So uh, I've seen the need for us to set out in a logical way the case for secession. And what I've shared this morning is just one of the chapters I witnessed to successful secessions from this new book, A Case for Secession, which is at the printer right now. Um, and it gives the biblical, historical, legal, factual, practical, constitutional foundations for secession and gives examples of excellence, 23 different examples of successful countries which have campaigned for secession. And we've got even the front cover gives the case for secession in a, in a picture by having the flags of countries that historic countries that have been examples of secession, starting with Switzerland, Netherlands, USA, Belgium, Texas, Nicaragua, Norway, Finland, Ireland, Pakistan, Taiwan, Singapore, all these countries came out of secession. Bangladesh, secede from Pakistan, Namibia, secede from South Africa, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, secede from Russia, Croatia and Slovenia, secede from Yugoslavia, Eritrea, secede from Ethiopia in 1991, Slovakia from Czechoslovakia in 1993, East Timor in 2002, secede from Indonesia, and South Sudan from Sudan in 2011. And so there have got 23 examples of successful sessions with the flags on the cover and inside front covers uh, with the dates and the places they secede from, just that visually you can immediately see the case for secession is a good, strong case. It's a biblical case. We've got good economic reasons for it, good legal, practical, social reasons. And it's not just a good idea. It's absolutely essential for survival in our case. We're either going down with the SA Titanic where they cannot even keep the lights on. That's the difference between the Titanic and the ANC ruled South Africa. When the Titanic went down, the lights were on. And in South Africa today, we have regular power failures, regular power failures, like you could have two, three, four, five, six hours a day, some parts of the country, 12 hours a day, nonstop, no power, no electricity at all. You can imagine what that does to businesses, to study, uh, to people trying to communicate. Our postal services collapsed. The Southern Post Office, run by the government, 
doesn't function at all. We can't post letters through the post office or parcels. There's millions of undelivered parcels and, and letters in the post office right now. Our Southgate Airways, which used to be one of the finest airlines in the world, um, is actually defunct. It cannot, it's so bankrupt, it cannot operate, it hasn't flown in, in years. And we've got our electrical company unable to keep the lights on. So we have regular power failures, rolling blackouts, and often there's shorts of water. There are parts of the country where in a major city you can be without water for days. This is all part of a, a failed state where the government can't keep the lights on, cannot do the job, cannot protect us from being mugged and attacked and attacks on churches and attacks on homes. They can't maintain law and order. Um, they can't provide us with electricity. They can't provide any of the basic services that the government's meant to do. So we see ourselves as as relieved of all obligation to pay taxes and to support this government. If central government fails in their duty, the lesser magistrate has the duty to step in and to fill a gap. And so while nationally the country's a failure, our Western Cape province is doing much better. And so we are saying that the Western Cape needs to secede. But there's good reasons for this because the Western Cape actually was a separate entity for centuries. And uh, we only got forced into the Union of South Africa at the point of the bayonet after Anglo-Boer War. The British government forced the Cape of Good Hope into a union with the defeated Boer Republics after Anglo-Boer War and the concentration camps in Scorchers, and along with Natal, a British colony. And so we had this sudden uh, union of South Africa forced upon us by the British government. Now, they gave independence to the Kingdom of Swaziland, to Lesotho and to Botswana, which were originally part of the Union of South Africa. Uh, we gave independence to, to Namibia in 1994, but now somehow they're saying you can't allow independence for the Western Cape, even though the Western Cape existed before any other entity in the whole country. We've got a over 500-year history in the Western Cape. We've had a parliament here for much longer than the city of Johannesburg's even existed, and so on. So we've got so much going for us in the Western Cape, and I've put the case for secession in general in this book, a case for secession, which has chapters on even Magna Carta and uh, the legal case for self-determination, the uh, constitutional case, uh, how to reclaim our municipalities, what we can practically do to work for secession, independence and freedom, secessions in the Bible and history, and eyewitness to successful secession movements, which is what I've dealt with in this particular radio program. So back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, and Peter. Um, one point that I'd like to raise, and I think this is a very uh, good time to raise it, uh, much of what you talked about was um, what really defines one nation one's nationality. Um, and of course, many white people in uh, not just South Africa, but uh, the likes of Rhodesia, countries like that, um, they're constantly being accused of stealing the land, what have you. So how would you justify that position in the sense of what really defines one's nationality? Because I understand that you regard yourself as a white Rhodesian or white South African. Please answer the audience uh, that question. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm an African. I'm a white African. Uh, we use the term Afrikaner or Rhodesian. We are, we are Africans, even though we're white. And remember that there used to be many white Africans. If you can just think back to the Bible, uh, there's Simon of Sarene. Uh, he was an African who helped the Lord carry his cross to uh, to uh, Calvary. And uh, uh, John Mark, who wrote Mark's Gospel, uh, he was a white African. He was born in North Africa. And 
the whole of North Africa used to be white civilization. Some of the earliest church fathers were white Africans, Tertullian, Augustine, Oregon, uh, Athanasius, um, Tertullian. These, these are just some, Cyprian, these are just some of the early church fathers who are overwhelmingly North Africans. But there were, there were white people, but there were still Africans. And this idea that, well, a white person can't be an African uh, is just so unfair. Does that mean a black person can't be an American? And of course, there's many who wouldn't accept that at all. Uh, but they're trying to say that a white person can't be an African. Well, I was born in Africa. All my children are born in Africa. My grandson's born here um, and all living here too. This is our country. Uh, we've built it up. And our people built civilization out of the wilderness. And so when people like Jan van Riebe came to the Cape 350 years ago, they didn't find a city. They didn't find civilization. They found nomadic people uh, who were... Um, having a very short lifespan. They, they doubled and trebled their life expectancy with advanced medicine. They fought against famines with advanced um, agricultural methods and ended the intertribal genocides and warfares. For example, if you look across Africa, you can see lots of evidence of the Bushmen and the Khoisan, or what we call the Hottentots, but now we call them the Khoisan people. Um, they existed all over Central Africa, all over East Africa, but they only exist now in the Western Cape. And the reason is the black people, when they came down, they exterminated, hunted out for sport and wiped out every one of the Khoisan people that used to live all the way from Kenya through Tanzania down um, into uh, what today is Zimbabwe and South Africa. And uh, the only place where the Khoisan or the Bushmen, these Hottentots, these Aboriginal shorter people with more yellow skin, the only place they survive is where the whites could protect them from being hunted and genocided by the black people. You could say the same thing about um, uh, the Bushmen uh, living up in Namibia or old Southwest Africa. We had a battalion in the South Army called the Bushmen's Battalion, and they were some of our most ferocious soldiers, very good trackers, but they didn't take prisoners. And friends of mine who were officers in the uh, Bushmen's uh, Battalion uh, had to fight hard to protect any captured enemy that he would survive because the Bushmen had an axe to grind against this the Avambo tribes from which the Aswapa terrorists were drawn because they would hunt the Bushmen for sports, use them as slaves. And so the Bushmen um, had a, a real axe to grind in fighting against the Swapa terrorists because they were tribally the people who used to hunt them and used to enslave them. And even to this day, there's Bushmen who are uh, slaves of them. If I go to the Congo, there's the Pygmies as well, who hunted for sports or enslaved by the local Congolese. Some people speak about uh, the whites who went to New Zealand taking away the land from the Maoris. Well, the Maoris are not the original inhabitants of New Zealand. The original inhabitants of New Zealand were cooked and eaten by the Maori. The Maori invaded uh, New Zealand and killed and ate the, the original inhabitants. So for people to say that the uh, white settlers from Britain came and dispossessed the original inhabitants of, of uh, New Zealand, the Maori, well, they don't know enough of New Zealand history or they'd realize that, in fact, the Maori had actually exterminated the original inhabitants. The same thing you can say for the Red Indians who inhabited uh, North America, including Canada. They were not the original inhabitants. Archaeologists have found evidence that the original inhabitants were exterminated by the what we call the Indians, who moved in. Uh, probably they immigrated coming across during the Ice Age uh, from Asia, across into Alaska, and moved down into the Americas. And the people who were there originally all got wiped out. And this is part of reality. 
this idea that somehow there's something intrinsically evil about the whites, um, because the whites fought different people and settled and civilized some wild places and built civilization in some of the remotest parts of the world, that's not exactly balanced at all. Remember in the scriptures, God says to Abraham that your descendants will be as many as the stars on the seashore, much of the sands on the on seashore, stars of the sky. You'll possess the gates of your enemy. So there will be a company of nations. And there's all these prophecies in the Bible that the um, the children of Abraham will be called great. Well, there's only one place in the world called great. And uh, how they possess the gates of the enemies and be a blessing to all the families and nations of earth. There's only one people group that fits that um, those prophecies. Who has been a blessing to all the nations of the earth? Who else uh, but the Anglo-Saxons has ended slavery, set the captives free, brought literacy to the world, raised life expectancy, uh, brought aid all throughout the world, and built up civilization in the utmost parts of the earth, and really been truly great in a company of nations. So uh, you can see God's people have fulfilled many of the prophecies, and God even told them to take these lands, and many times it was judgment on the wicked people, original inhabitants of the land, who were involved in idolatry and witchcraft and human sacrifice and child sacrifice and all kinds of evils, very, very evil practices. And so uh, to get all worked up on behalf of Indians who used to scalp um, settlers and who used to eat the original people and, you know, cannibals in Africa or the Maori of New Zealand, um, it's such selective outrage that some or another when you get down to it, all this guilt manipulation, gaslighting, uh, this cancel culture business, at its heart, it's anti-white, anti-Western, anti-Christian. It's anti-God when you get down to the core of it. The reason why they hate us so much is not the color of our skin. They hate us because we represent Christian values and Christian civilization. And uh, as the Lord said, if they hated me, they will hate you too. And uh, if you are of the world, they would love you as your own. But because you're not of the world, because you're of me, they hate you. They hated me. Uh, those who love death hate uh, hate me. And so the scripture makes it quite clear why we have this irrational hatred of Christians around the world, which is seen in so much of the guilt manipulation of Hollywood and the demonization of white people, uh, right down to adverts, Hollywood, Disney. Uh, you can just see this absolute hostility where they even want to take um, uh, white Christian civilization stories, fairy stories like Snow White, and put in someone who's not even not even white to be Snow White. I mean, how does that work? And uh, where they don't want to have dwarves in for the seven dwarves, and they're trying to redraw, rewrite history, redraw civilization. Cancel culture is very much at its core anti-Christian, anti-Western. It's not just anti-white. It's actually anti-God when you get down to it. Even though our people are in so many ways so secular and godless today, the reason why they hate it is because of the Christian ancestry of the Western Christian civilizations. And there's this desire to destroy it all. And you can see that even the hatred for the flag of England. Um, I've heard from friends in England that uh, they were told they weren't allowed to fly the, the St. George's Cross, the flag of, of Richard Lionheart um, in England, even though it's English national flag, because policemen said it's racist to fly that flag. So imagine that English policemen telling you you're not allowed to fly an English flag in England. Where in the world would you get people not allowed to fly the national flag in their own country? So the reason is it's got the cross on it. It represents um, Christianity. At its core, um, cancel culture is anti-Christianity. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And um, my thoughts towards this cancel culture, 
you've spoken about many Christians who've um, converted, who you've converted, what have you, have come to you for counsel, who've had pasts that they're not particularly proud of. Um, the power of uh, Christianity and Jesus Christ is the power of forgiveness, so one can turn their back on a life that they regret and find Jesus Christ. And for me, the most odious aspect of cancel culture is that anything you've done in your past can be used against you and no forgiveness is allowed by cancel culture. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yes, at the heart of Christianity is redemption. There's change, there's transformation. But there's absolutely no hope of redemption um, under the present globalist system. If you're white, if you're Western, if you're Christian, uh, you're damned, doomed, lost. If you're straight, if you're a straight white male, I mean, that's three strikes in the arts. I mean, that's about the worst thing you can be. There's the only redemption, if you can call it redemption, because there's no forgiveness whatsoever in the new world order and the globalist secular system. If there's any redemption, it's that you must become a homosexual, transgender type pervert. That's the only way you can go from being part of the oppressor class of being a white straight male or a white straight female or anything like that. If you uh, will become a transgender pagan, if you will uh, go through uh, gender affirming surgery, get castrated or mastectomied, um, get sterilized, if you will become a pervert, a godless pervert, then I don't know if that gives you redemption, but that's about the only way you can be saved, so to speak, um, uh, and move from being an oppressive, evil white person is the transgender movement. So that's about the one way they want, because that basically sterilizes you and means you will not be able to do the most important thing that you could do, which is uh, produce um, an heir uh, in, in the future, because you would not exist if any of your ancestors had not had children and raised them, uh, so or had married outside the race, you wouldn't exist. So for you to exist, your ancestors had to have been faithful within their marrying within their race, within their nation, uh, within their tribe in some cases even, uh, for you to exist. And today they are massively promoting a um, miscreation to destroy any descendants from the white race. And this is the highest priority of the South African Communist Party and the American Communist Party to promote miscreation because, as I say, a white male is good for absolutely nothing except fertilizer. All you can do with a white male is kill him. But a white female is of some use because she could be made to produce a brown baby. Now, in that way, she can help bring about the demise of Western Christian civilization. Therefore, uh, there's some there's some possible redemption, if you can use the word redemption, but there's no real forgiveness, but they can at least turn them, if they will turn against their own people and produce a mixed race baby, then at least they've done something to help bring about the new world order, the globalism, and break down Western Christian um, uh, civilization. And so you can see there's a lot of racist hatred, hatred for whites. When they speak about white supremacy, I don't know how many whites speak about white supremacy, but there's a lot of people speaking about black supremacy, female supremacy, Asian supremacy, and so on. And of course, Islamic supremacy, Jewish supremacy, I mean, that's real. There's a lot of Jews who believe they're superior to the filthy Goyim. There are a lot of Muslims who believe they're the, they're the greatest race uh, in the world and everyone else is, is just like monkeys. And uh, there's a lot of Asians who speak about foreign devils um, and blue-eyed devils uh, as compound noun. You know, blue-eyed devil and white devil um, or foreign devil goes together as compound in Chinese, that they look at foreigners in the most um, uh, 
how do we call it, uh, the most hostile towards um, xenophobic way of their, their hostility to foreigners is very intense. Probably the kindest people to foreigners and the people who've done the most for other races and foreign people are the white Anglo-Saxon people, particularly the Protestants of Europe, who've been very sacrificial in sending out missionaries and helping feed the starving and bring medical care and raise the life expectancy of people of other races. And yet the whites who've done the most to help other races, the Europeans, are the most guilt-manipulated. I've heard people say in Europe, the average European would rather be raped or stabbed than called a racist. I mean, how's that for the power of guilt manipulation? The average European would rather be raped or stabbed than called a racist. I mean, how insane is that? That's the power of gaslighting, guilt manipulation, cancel culture, and the entire mobilization of propaganda to make people hate their own race, hate their own history, hate their own culture, their own family. In fact, the Frankfurt School of Communism said, we must break every tie of blood, soil, father, mother, nation, race, uh, religion. The whole goal of cancel culture is to break all the ties that make us into Western Christian civilization in particular. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Peter. And before we go, can you please let the audience know where they can find your work and how they can contact you? Yes, my personal email is peter, P-E-T-E-R, at frontline, F-R-O-N-T-L-I-N-E, dot org, dot Z-A, or Z-A as Americans would pronounce it. So peter at frontline, dot O-R-G, dot Z-A. That's my email. And you go onto our website, frontlinemissionsa.org, frontlinemissionsa, short for South Africa, frontlinemissionsa.org is our website. And this new book, A Case for Secession, it's 100 pages. It's got 42 pictures. It's got a whole lot of contributions dealing with all sorts of aspects of secession and self-determination. This is the cure for the globalists. The globalists are trying to get centralization. We're going for decentralization. And so following the example of the Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, uh, Norway, Finland, um, South Sudan, you're breaking away uh, into independent states. That is the way of freedom and of, of the future. I believe this case for session book is good for many other countries. There's many other countries that need to um, secede as well. We, we've got to fight centralization and globalism. And this is one of our best uh, weapons in fighting globalism. So I'm campaigning for the Cape of Good Hope a free and independent Cape of Good Hope. And uh, we've got election coming up in May and we're hoping to include a referendum for secession in that. So that's something to pray for. And if anyone's in Cape Town, we're having a series of meetings regularly. Um, every Thursday night, the Reformation Society in Rondebosch, having different leaders of the Cape Independence Movements coming together to talk about this. This book's at the printer now. It's going to be back soon. It'll be a great weapon to use to um, give education, information, enlist more people in the campaign for secession and independence for self-determination, which is guaranteed in a whole series of constitutions, including the African Union, United Nations, charters, all guarantee the rights of self-determination of peoples. And uh, that's what we're trying to exercise right now. So thank you very much, Andrew. And of course, people can get hold of us on social media as well. Thank you so much, Peter. Okay, folks, that'll uh, call it a show. So let's play the closing music. You have been listening to Dr. Peter Hammond's presentation, The Real Story of Successful Secession Movements Defeating the Globalist Centralization Agenda. I want to thank all of you for listening. Peter and I'll be back with you next Tuesday. I'll be back with you on Saturday. Until then, folks, bye for now.